turn my mic up. Take there. Yeah, yeah, uh. On the road to the riches. Life takes a toll like bridges. Good friends become foes and snitches. Better watch who knows in your business. Hustle fam, hustle fam. We are back with another amazing episode. So today we have a very, very special guest. I have Brittany Barnett here in the building today. Brittany, welcome to Truck and Hustle. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. So Brittany is a corporate lawyer, right? Corporate law. Is that correct? All right. Entrepreneur, author, right? Uh, Most recently, trucking company owner, (laughs) right? (laughs) And we'll we'll get to that. And that's how we make the tie in the truck and hustle, which is actually, you know, I just want to point out, it's really amazing this show, I, I love talking to different people because it's awesome how we have so many guests that come from so many different walks of life in this industry. And we're going to get into the story and, and, and learn how, you know, Brittany got into trucking. We'll get to that. Um, but there's so much other things that she's doing. So, so Brittany, again, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited about it. I follow Trucking Hustle for a long time. All right. Dope, dope, dope. All right, let's get into it. So, uh, you're a corporate lawyer, um, but your passion, uh, you, okay, you actually started in corporate law, right? But but your passion actually turned to what? Tell, tell, tell us about what happened in your transition from corporate law. Yeah, so in 2016, I ended up resigning from my corporate law job to follow my passion to transform this nation's criminal legal system. And even while I was a corporate lawyer, I always worked pro bono on cases of people who were serving life without parole, 40 years, 50 year sentences under these outdated federal drug laws. And so that work, it just started to really give me another sense of purpose in life. I grew up in rural East Texas, small town country girl, happy childhood, you know, played sports. My mom was a nurse. My stepdad worked at the local coal mine, but all through this, my mom was struggling with drug addiction and her addiction ultimately led to her going to prison when I was a young adult. And so this brought me very proximate to this crisis of mass incarceration that this country faces and me knowing my mom had an addiction and she needed rehabilitation, not incarceration. So that gave me just a different perspective and brought me close to a group of people that were often taught to stereotype and ignore. And those are people that are in prison. And I know from my own personal experience of a mom having a drug addiction, going to prison, that I was still happy. You know, we as Black people are not this monolithic experience that, that others try to plug us into. When I use a quote in my book, from Nikki Giovanni. And it's from her poem, Nikki Rosa. And she says, black love is black wealth. And they'll probably talk about my hard childhood and never understand that all the while I was quite happy. Because we can have struggle, we can have challenge and we can have happiness at the same time. We're nuanced people. And no matter what the struggle was with my mom and it was a struggle, I knew that love was unconditional. And that's what help go through. So I go practice corporate law. I always wanted to be a lawyer growing up. I wanted to be Claire Huxtable from the college. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. You know, unfortunately growing up where I did, there were no lawyers and there certainly weren't any black women lawyers. And so that dream of becoming a lawyer, I started to feel like it was out of my league. Like it was something I couldn't accomplish. Looking back, I realized it's because I didn't know any, and that's why representation it's so important. And so I went on and became an accountant. I got a bachelor's and master's in accounting, but that dream of becoming a lawyer was always there. And I remember talking to a mentor of mine and I said, Ken, you know, I'm thinking about going to law school just to see what he would say. And he was like, oh, Brittany, you should go. I applied to law school at SMU in Dallas and I'm going to start in the fall. So I remember being happy for my friend But also thinking too, now, wait a minute, if he can go to law school, I know I can go to law school, you know, so he gave me that motivation, but I still didn't know any lawyers. 
the law school process seemed overwhelming to me to even get in. And I was working for a large accounting firm, PricewaterhouseCoopers. Okay, big large, four, right? One of the big four. And in the building, I was downtown Dallas, Baker Botts, which is a big law firm, was in the same building. And okay. I went to their website and was just scrolling down their list of lawyers. And the first black woman I saw was Krista Brown Sanford. And I sent her this random email, told her, you know, I worked in the same building. I was an accountant, but I was thinking about going to law school. And I asked if she would meet me at the Starbucks downstairs. And she responded almost immediately. And wow. when I tell you that Krista met me in that Starbucks in 2007, and she took my hand and she has not let it go. Oh, wow. Yes. And from there, I went to law school. I went on to practice corporate law. Was she a corporate lawyer also? She, she was. She did mostly uh, intellectual property. Okay. So she was an engineer. Okay. And she went on to, to practice intellectual property law. And I went on to practice corporate law. Mergers and acquisitions is what I did. So I was in the private equity space. And I enjoyed it. I really did. But in law school, I took this critical race theory course that analyzes the intersection between race and the law. Mm. And I was writing my paper about the disparity in sentencing between powder cocaine and crack cocaine and came across this 100 to one ratio in the law. So I had interned for federal judges during the summer and I just kept seeing this conveyor belt of black and brown men and women going to federal prison for drugs for a long time. And I wanted to know how these laws came about. And so this 100 to 1 ratio was implemented in the 1986 Anti-Drug Abuse Act. And what that means is you could have 500 grams of powder cocaine. I could have only five grams of crack cocaine and we're gonna get the same amount of time in prison. It's not lost on anybody now, the late 80s especially, that more affluent white people were using powder cocaine and crack cocaine was running rampant through communities of color, in particular black communities. And what this racially biased law did was it, it created this, this disproportionate sentencing in the federal system. So even today, more than 80% of the people in federal prison today for drugs are black and brown. So I had this paper I was writing and I was, I'm at SMU, I ended up going to law school at SMU. So it's a predominantly white institution, a private school, but I wanted it to show the heartbeat. I wanted to show the people who had been impacted by this law. And I had a childhood friend who was 23 years old and got life for drugs. And Keon was the guy, and you know, everybody got the guy in their community, their neighborhood that is supposed to make it. Right. The guy that everybody loves and he's supposed to make it out. That was Keon. He was in college a few months from graduating college and the FBI arrested him on the college campus for a federal drug conspiracy. And we knew Keon was selling drugs, but we also knew Keon wasn't selling drugs to get him a life without parole sentence. Right. And I still thought his case was an anomaly, right? Like it's, this is real East Texas justice, good old boys club. But when I started writing this paper in law school and I wanted to humanize the paper more, I knew I was gonna write about Keon, but I wanted to include a woman because my mom had been to prison and I knew how maternal incarceration impacted our family. And I, I'm not kidding, I did a Google search, like woman, life sentence, federal drug, and Sharonda Jones's case pulled up. She was a black woman from the rural South like me. And she was at the time serving her 10th year of a mandatory life sentence in federal prison for federal drug conspiracy. Her first ever conviction. Right. Sharonda had never even received a traffic ticket before. Wow. And I learned in her case that she was convicted under this 100 to one disparity in sentencing and that her role, you know, my clients take accountability for their actions she participated in a drug conspiracy. She had a minor role of essentially being a drug mule, if you will. She transported drugs a few times down the interstate for two drug suppliers. And both of the drug suppliers in her case testified against her in exchange for lesser sentences. Wow. And so you have a drug supplier that 
is admitting to trafficking two, 300 kilograms of powder cocaine, testifying against Sharonda, saying that she would get drugs from him. And by the time I took Sharonda's case, he was already out of prison. Oh my gosh. And she was serving life. And it was just mind blowing to me, like what I was learning about this system. And then to realize where I came from and I dated a drug dealer in high school and my freshman year of college. And just to think that being in proximity, not knowing what's going on, but knowing he sold drugs that I could have ultimately been caught up in a drug conspiracy. Right, right. Because of how easy it is. All you need for a federal drug conspiracy case is an agreement between two or more people. There were no drugs found in Sharonda's case. There was no surveillance, no controlled buys, no large sums of money. She was convicted based primarily on the testimony of co-conspirators. And so I didn't know what the, I don't think people even realize what these laws are like. I, when I think federal drug conspiracy or somebody getting life for selling dope, I'm thinking Pablo Escobar. I'm thinking <laughs> international drug right, right, cartel, right, you know, right. not somebody from East Texas, yeah. you know, and even during my experience, you know, of dating a drug dealer, growing up an 80s baby, height of the war on drugs, the community where I was, you either knew someone selling drugs or using drugs. It was kind of part of the culture that we didn't think much about. Right. You know, now looking back, we realize how wrong it is and how much systemic oppression is there. But what I saw was I, I saw people around me selling drugs, young kids in high school who were my friends. And I knew that they wasn't waking up every day with this dream of becoming a dope dealer. Right. I saw that I saw my friends selling drugs to eat. I saw my friends selling drugs to help their mamas with light bills. I saw the systemic oppression, you know, that came from this mechanism of surviving. Granted, some sold drugs got addicted to the money and the lifestyle, and that's a whole nother story. But I saw the systemic oppression from it. And then when I learned the laws and how these laws are locking people up for life, there's no parole in the federal system. Right. Life is life. My friend, Keon, Sharonda Jones was set to die in prison. Mm. You know, and so I learned that this life without parole, we got to remember, it's the second most severe penalty permitted by law in America, other than the death penalty. And it screams a person is beyond hope, beyond redemption, and it truly suffocates mass potential as it buries people alive. And so I just kept taking these cases. I was working as a corporate lawyer, kept taking these cases pro bono on the side. I took Sharonda Jones's case, kept finding out there was no avenue for us to get her out of prison through the court. Okay. The laws were starting to change. People were starting to see that this 100 to one ratio was unjust and racially biased. Supreme Court was changing laws. United States Sentencing Commission was changing federal drug laws, making it to where people with crack cocaine convictions weren't getting as harsh penalties. But then these laws weren't retroactive, which means they weren't reaching back to help people that were already suffering. Right. And I'm thinking, now wait a minute, if the law's wrong today, it was wrong yesterday. That's a fact. It wasn't making any sense to me. And so we have people serving life sentences today for drugs under yesterday's drug laws. And I had to get honest with myself with Sharonda because part of it, I was like, damn, did I just get her hopes up just to let her down? Right. Like she's serving life. Her whole family got caught up in this conspiracy. Her mama, who was quadriplegic, paralyzed from the neck down, received 17 years on this case. Sharonda was incarcerated with her mama. We, we go through the years of trying to get her free. Her mom dies in prison. It, it was so much happening, you know, and Hold so on, I, why, why was mom involved in the case? Mom was involved in the case, in my opinion, because she wouldn't give up information on her kids. Gotcha. Her son gotcha. was certainly selling drugs from her home and drugs were found in her backyard that her son put there. You know, right. she, she, she had been paralyzed since the 70s. And they locked a quadriplegic mother up for 17 years? That's in federal prison. Okay, yeah. continue. <laughs> yeah. This is how we're devastating families. Yeah. So Sharonda's yeah. 
prison with her mom for 12 years. And then her mom passes away from a staph infection in prison. And so I'm getting, I'm taking these cases and I, I'm realizing the only way I'm going to get Sharonda free is through executive clemency from the president of the United States of America. And what clemency is, it's where justice meets mercy. And it's an exclusive power granted to the president by the constitution. And at the time, President Barack Obama was, was in office. And so I went on this journey to, to petition President Obama, prepare a clemency petition to show the heartbeat, to show the woman who was Sharonda Jones that was in prison. And her petition was filed for two years. I worked on Sharonda's case for six years. And on December 18, 2015, President Obama granted her clemency. Wow. And saved her life. So after 16 years and nine months, Sharonda Jones was coming home. And during this time, I was on an upward track on my career. You know, I was working on a deal. We were acquiring a company in Brazil. You know, it was fast paced, it was fun, the money was nice, you know, but then I just felt this pull towards helping to get as many people out of prison as possible before President Obama left under this clemency initiative he had started for people who were serving these harsh drug sentences. And so I ended up meeting another client named Corby Jacobs. He was serving 16 life sentences. And 16, wow. 16 for drugs. First time arrested, he was from New York, went to college in Virginia, got caught up in Virginia. And when I was first reached out to take Corey's case, I said, no. You know, at the time, Sharonda hadn't gotten free yet. And I had had other clients get free before Sharonda. And it was just tough, you know, to know that she was still set to die there. And the day that uh, Sharonda got the clemency, Corey's people reached back out to me. And I said, okay, you know, I'll talk to him. And I was, I was so, I, I, I talked to Corey for probably 30 minutes on a legal call and I, I could feel so much potential, right? so much human ingenuity in him. This nation needed to thrive. And so I went to visit Corey. He was at a United States Penitentiary in Terry Hood, Indiana. And he was teaching me from prison how to meditate. Okay. Because I was working on these corporate deals and it was intense. And then I'm trying to get people out of prison at night. And I went to visit him. And what was always so mind-blowing with Sharonda and Corey and my other clients was how positive they were facing a reality that would be unbearable for many. Yeah. And teaching me and empowering me. And Corey was in the visit and he's talking, he's, he's animated, you know, and he's telling me about meditation. And he said that he had read that nature can enhance the meditation experience, but he hadn't seen a tree in years. Cause he's at a maximum security prison and there's like a 12 foot concrete wall surrounding the prison yard and there's no trees on the yard. Right. And I honestly, I don't remember nothing else Corey said because I couldn't move past the fact he had not seen a tree, a tree. Yeah. And I left that prison visit just empowered. I wanted to use my platform as a lawyer for the greater good. I drove back to Indianapolis to the airport and took in every fucking tree that I saw. <laughs> I still do. You know, I, I look at trees, you know, what a privilege that is for us. Right, to right, 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 right. And so I went back and I, I went to talk to my dad about this thought of resigning from corporate law. I'm doing really well. Salary upwards, you know, $300,000 a year. I'm young. I, I'm, I'm enjoying being financially secure. And I, and I had an obligation too, I felt, to blaze a trail for other Black women and girls to follow me and be in these boardrooms and have a seat at the table. And my dad said, you know, Brittany, don't worry so much about the challenges, but imagine the possibilities instead yeah. and he said I think you already know the decision and I did I I, I waited till I got my bonus because <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna last me another year right I, I resigned and I hit the ground running working to get as many people as possible Corey Jacobs received clemency 10 months later from President Barack Obama and I had seven clients who received clemency from Obama and then I've had two clients who've received clemency from 
from Donald Trump, including Alice Marie Johnson. And Corey Jacobs, Sharonda Jones, and I, we co-founded the Buried Alive Project. And through that organization, we worked to free people who were sentenced to life without parole under these outdated federal drug laws. And we freed dozens of men and women to date. And nothing gives me a greater joy, you know, than seeing them live their, their life after life. Sharonda's doing amazing. She was a cook. She had her own restaurant before she went to prison. Entrepreneur for sure. Wow. Her dream was to have her own food truck. Okay. And she's going to hire formerly incarcerated people to work at the food truck because she saw how difficult it was for them to get jobs from the halfway house. And you got to have a job while you're at the halfway house. And so I invested in her food truck a couple of months ago. She's designing the inside. Okay. It's okay. Be called Fed Up. Fed <laughs> Up with the system. I like that. Fed Up with fed the up. feds. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. You're going to have your bed, bellies fed with some good food. Oh. Corey's doing amazing. He's turns out to be Diddy's best friend. Okay. So he works as senior advisor to the chairman of Combs Enterprises. And he's just living his, his best life. You know, and I tell people all the time, Diddy has a lot of friends, right? Corey's not his right-hand man because he's his, his friend. He's there because he possesses his brilliance and genius right. that, that Puff sees. 100%. And, yeah. And I... um with all my clients, you know, I started to see just so much untapped genius and potential. One of my clients, Chris Young, he's still in prison. We're working to get him free. 22 years old, arrested, ultimately sentenced to life without parole. Grew up in suffocating poverty in Clarksville, Tennessee. Brother committed suicide. Mother was addicted mm -hmm. to drugs. And Chris is a victim of this three strikes law. His two drug priors were for when he was a teenager and the quantity for both priors was like way less than three pennies. And he got mandatory life on the federal level. So much genius there. And I started talking to him. The federal judge in Christian's case resigned from the bench because he was so disturbed with having to hand out these mandatory life sentences. And the federal judge, that's a lifetime appointment. Yeah. The federal judge... Judge Kevin Sharp, he works with me now on Chris Young's case, trying to work to get him freed. And Chris just was so obsessed with technology and artificial intelligence. And I started sending him magazines and he taught himself how to code from prison without a computer. And I connected him to a friend of mine who was a global programmer. And my friend was so impressed that Chris could speak in Python, a coding language, you know, and Chris has an idea for an app that would help identify people who were suicidal because his brother committed suicide. Oh, wow. And it just shows, as my friend Glenn Martin always says, the people closest to the problem are closest to the solutions. They're just the furthest away from the power and the resources. Yes. And I started to think, wow, we're getting all these people from prison. I'm, I'm seeing personally this genius. And I realized we can't keep rescuing people from prison and restoring them to poverty. And I've, I'm always pondering my highest and best use. What is my highest and best use as a human being on this earth? And I'm wanting to merge my corporate experience with my passion to transform the system. And so now I'm just holding this vision of sustainable liberation. How can I help create sustainable liberation that includes economic liberation, so that when people are getting out of prison, they're put in positions to thrive and not just survive, you know, focus on equity, making sure formerly incarcerated people uh, at the center of any movement surrounding them and at the table. Because when you look at it, and I look at it from my perspective and my experience, taking away the illegal product, the drugs, my clients are entrepreneurs. And entrepreneurs in it to the extent that they could probably run Fortune 500 companies. Right. They were running Fortune 500 companies. It was yeah. just an illegal yeah. product. And just thinking of how can I work to get them access to legitimate economy, access to capital and resources. And so that's that's where I am now, you know, and that's how I started, you know, to learn about trucking and <laughs> And here I am today, you know, really from from businessmen and those are my clients who, who served a lot of time for selling drugs. Right, right, right.
Wow. So, so first of all, I want to say thank you for your work because, you know, what, what you're doing is so important, you know, to begin with, it's, it's such a selfless act that, that you, that you did and such a selfless journey that you embarked on to actually put your career to the side where you were making good money, making a way for yourself, a career that most people would dream of. And you actually took the time to reach back, you know, into the community and, 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 and help these people and, and, you know, find all this untapped potential, you know what I mean? That, that, like you said, is literally buried alive. So, so thank you so much for that. That, that is dope. This is, this is a really dope story. I want to kind of get into unpacking some of that a little bit, if you don't mind. When, when you are attempting to free someone, right? And you said you had to go through Obama, you had to go through clemency. What type of things do you have to prove? Like what, because you obviously have to disprove some of the notions that's already out there about this person that would um, mean that they would have to serve life in prison. What are you, what are you proving? What are you, tr- what are you showing in order to get them out of prison? How does that work? I'm showing the heartbeat. I'm showing that my clients have been on this remarkable path of rehabilitation that they accept responsibility for the far reaching impact of their actions that they work daily on self-improvement, even while facing the possibility of never ever breathing air as a free person again. They have made a difference in the prison to other people in prison around them. They have families. I tell their journey up into incarceration and, and humanize them in that respect. And then I share their goals and dreams upon release okay. and how they can be a positive asset to society. You know, we talk about changing the laws and systemic change, and we have to change these laws. It is beyond legitimate debate that this nation's criminal legal system is racist. And I want people to realize that systemic change don't always gotta come from Capitol Hill. It don't always have to come from Congress. The people we're freeing are creating systemic change. We're setting forth a movement of power and dignity that is full of people that are gonna positively impact everybody they meet in the future. And I'm really wanting to show on those petitions that that potential, that wasted human capital, that waste of taxpayer dollars and the human potential that this nation needs, it needs. How, how are you received by your peers in the legal community or um, other attorneys for, for doing this type of work? Very well, very well. I have a lot of support from other attorneys, you know, patting me on the back, great job, you know, admirable, the work that I'm doing, you know, but for me it is, is y'all need to come help. It doesn't matter what type of law you practice, every lawyer should, should be a civil rights attorney, you know, and I'm, I'm grateful that I have been used as a vessel to help free dozens of men and women who were set to die in prison and I want to build a super team of lawyers to help. There's not many professions where you could actually save somebody's life. Right. And the work that we do is life-saving. And it, it's something that I feel I'm supposed to do. You know, I mentioned growing up in rural East Texas and very close to my grandparents. And they had a pond in front of their house. I would go fishing with my grandpa a lot. And I remember one day, I'd always been smart in school and I was telling him, I made straight A's and I had a friend who made straight A's and she had been given $5 for every A on her report card from her parents. And I said, daddy, I called my grandpa, daddy. I said, daddy, I made all A's, you know, what are you going to give me? And he said, I'm not going to give you anything. And I was crushed because my grandparents never tell me no. But he looked at me and he said, I'm not going to give you anything, big girl, because making straight A's, that's what you're supposed to do. Mm. You're smart. That's what you're supposed to do. And I feel this work is what I'm supposed to do. And it is what any lawyer is supposed to do as well. Whether it's criminal legal system or whatever the social justice issue is, we have to realize that for me, I've learned it is a privilege and an honor for me to do this work from having my clients trust me with their very lives. And it's something I don't take lightly. And so yeah. I, I approach each case taking my lived experience and combining it with my legal 
experience to to unchain genius into this world. Got you. Now, are most of these cases kind of presented to you or do you go and look for these type of cases? They're all presented to me. You know, I was a corporate lawyer, so I wasn't having my shingle out. You know, I didn't, I didn't know <laughs> nothing about criminal law. I didn't, right. All I knew was Sharonda Jones didn't deserve to die Got in you. prison, you know, and so it was just really divine how they came to me. Like I said, I Googled and found Sharonda Jones's case on a on a whim. Corey Jacobs found me from reading a Washington Post article about my work on Sharonda's case, you know, so it was all truly divine. And now we have the Buried Alive Project. So we're in touch with just about every person in federal prison serving life for drugs. Got you. When, when, when you when you engage these people, you know, initially, like what 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 do you what do you tell them to 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 get them through it? Because obviously, like you said earlier, you don't want to give them any false sense of hope. Like, how, how do you guys get through the journey together? Yeah, you know, with hope, you know, we I don't make any guarantees, but my clients and I come to an agreement that we aren't going to give up that we're gonna believe in their freedom and believe in it with conviction in our hearts. My first visit with Corey Jacobs, I remember telling him and he tells the story much better than me, but I told him to relax. I got you, I'm gonna take your case. And I said, I want you to go back to your cell and say, I'm free. Mm. I'm free. And we just had to, we had to believe in that. My dad taught me the power of intention long before people was making millions of dollars writing books about it. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I right. believe in that, you know, we have to truly be careful how we're programming our mind and what we think and what we're putting out into the universe, because we are powerful people. And Corey and I would meditate every day at the same time. He's in prison serving life. I'm in a high rise apartment, downtown Dallas, and we're meditating at the same time on his freedom. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. So you, 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 we, we talked behind the scene, we talked about the trucking, right? So talk about, talk about your business partner in the trucking industry. Let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So I'm telling you, I'm surrounded by all types of, of brilliance and I knew hardly anything about trucking. I had an uncle that was a truck driver and, and I remember, you know, his stories and, and ventures and when he got his own truck and, but I had a friend of mine who was arrested at 22 and received 25 years in federal prison for drugs. And he served 15 years. And I helped to get him out of prison. And he was talking about trucks and how all through prison, he had learned about the trucking industry from other people in prison and how he wanted to get his CDL get his own truck, you know, and ultimately build a fleet so he could hire other people like him who were coming out of prison because he knows how hard it is, you know, to get a job. And so he started school to become a CDL. He started looking at trucks. He was thinking of hotshot. Then he, then he looked at the semi trucks and capital was an issue because he wanted to work for another company, get experience and then purchase his own truck but he had just got out of prison, not even a year before. So he didn't have any credit, right? you know, or a eight to $10,000 down payment that it would require to, to get a truck. So I had him just tell me a little bit more about the transportation industry and what he knew about it. And so we started talking and he was so excited and passionate about it. One, I think this idea of being an entrepreneur in the right way. Right was empowering for him. And I could see his passion for it. And so I said, okay, I wanna help you. Let's be business partners in this. And at first I was just gonna help him purchase a truck, learn the industry a little bit myself because my dad is an entrepreneur, my grandpa, and I was always thought, never get in something that you don't know what's going on or what it's about. So I was happy he was getting his CDL because I wasn't <laughs> going to go get mine. But I knew I had the business and the back end experience to get in and learn it and understand it. And so once I did and I saw the opportunities to give people jobs and be in control of 
if I'm gonna be background friendly or not to hire people, you know, right. and give them jobs that are making more than just a living wage, I was all in. And so we started about a year ago, purchased two trucks right off the bat, then got the third one a couple of months later, about to add two more at the top of the year. And so I was helping provide the capital to get these trucks so that we could hire people who had been touched by the criminal legal system. And in a short amount of time, we had three trucks on the road, three guys, three drivers who are just amazing. I've, I'm not trying to find wood to knock on because we've been blessed with drivers. <laughs> you definitely <laughs> um, better knock on some wood. <laughs> definitely been blessed. I had a couple, you know, hiccups here and there, but it's a brand new industry for me. So I just jumped in learn. I wanted to learn all that I could. And it was exciting for me too, because I was able to provide capital for somebody to fulfill their dream right. of being an entrepreneur. And at the same, around the same time, I had helped provide capital to Sharonda to get her food truck. And I'm seeing just having access to capital, how excited they were, the hustle that they had, you know, to get these businesses off the ground, you know, to make me proud, but they're, they're making me proud just by being free, you know, yeah. that's my reward. And so I just started getting excited and I jumped in learning all that I could about trucking. And, you know, that's where I tapped in. I probably listened to every single episode of Truck Hustle <laughs> up until like March, you know, when I started, right. okay, it's time to go. You know, I was learning about having our own authority or should we, you know, lease onto another company? And I'm like, no, we're going to be in this. We're going to do it. You know, let's get on authority. Let's go. So my business partner and I, we're learning together. And it's empowering for me to see him so passionate about it, you know, and he's feeling good because he he's able to be an entrepreneur in his own right, but then he's able to, to provide jobs for people. And I, I can tell, like, it's that ripple effect of how do we scale and impact the community at large. So we are a socially conscious company. Buried Alive Project is a nonprofit, and it has been very difficult for me to fundraise for the nonprofit. We don't charge any client to take on their case. We take every case for free, but I have to pay lawyers to help. Right. And I'm like, I can't these grants. Like, it's so hard to fundraise and get donations for the grants. So I'm an entrepreneur and a businesswoman at heart. And I'm like, well, but the trucking company, let's take a percentage of the proceeds and put it back invested back into the Buried Alive project. Right. So our truckers are driving for change, mm. you know? And so that that's our motto. We give a percentage of our proceeds from Trustworthy Trucking, our trucking company, to the Buried Alive project to help get people free. So it's like an all wraparound services, you know? And ultimately, I want to be able to provide scholarships to send people to school for their CDLs and then ultimately be able to provide capital to get our drivers their own trucks, you know, it's all about economic liberation. And I say all the time, as I was working to free my clients, they were helping to free me too. Wow. And just my definition of freedom has evolved. It's much, it's much bigger than just getting people from behind those walls. You know, what are we freeing them into? Gotcha. What systems, you know, what can we put them in position to, to really flourish? And that that's what is so exciting for me about trucking. And it's different than what I'm used to with the law. So it's yeah. working a different part of my brain. So at first, you know, I was just going to be an investor and learn as much as I could. But then I just dove in, you know, so I'm mm. a pretty active investor learning. Also teaching our drivers to think strategically and long term. We are in a world where technology rules. Technology is going to continue to rule. So as you're on the road and many of my drivers, they've been trucking over five years, 110, you know, what about this industry while you're on the road? Could technology improve? Right. The other day, you know, one of our trucks, we had issues. We had to get the clutch repaired, but we were loaded fully loaded with Miller beer of all things, you know? <laughs> and so in East, we were in East Texas and I, I just wish there would, would have been an app that I could have went on to find someone with a truck that we could rent mm. or an app where I could, you know, look at to see, are there any 
all the rental companies that are out here, are there any, where's the nearest one that actually has a truck available without having to pick up the phone and call 10 places only for them to tell me, oh, it's peak season. You're not going to be right, really right, fine right. any rental trucks. But what about the owner operator that's at home for the week right. or just the day? You know, right. if there's an app, you know, so I'm always trying to get my drivers to think through long-term in a way that could truly benefit benefit them too. I have a company called 16 Capital Partners and that's where the investments come from, but I'm looking to build that and break into venture capital so that I can help build a fund that we can invest in formerly incarcerated people and getting our people to think through from a technology perspective on how we can make this world and this industry more efficient from technology is gonna be crucial because otherwise we're gonna be driving out of trucks and the people that don't look like us gonna have all these bright ideas about <laughs> apps and they've never even worked in the trucking industry before and they're gonna be making all the money and have a seat at the table when it, as it relates to our future right. in trucking. And that, yeah, that can't happen. Yeah, there actually is a, a, a website you should check out. It's called Co-op. C-O-O-P, um, rider, and they, they do something like that. They can provide you rental equipment, uh, uh, like, like trucks, trailers, different things like that. I've never actually personally used it, but I've been on the site and I've kind of uh, browsed through there. And I believe they have, they have uh, like, it's, it's, it's only available in, in certain cities right now in certain states. Um, and I think like Texas is one of them, maybe Georgia. But yeah, check okay. that out. Check 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 I'm out co-op. Yeah, because yeah. that would have came in handy the other day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what what are, what are some other what are some other struggles you've had uh, in in trucking so far? So far, it has been with dispatching and finding drivers who want to truly go over the road. Or if not, like we've been doing, two of our drivers are more regional, Southeast region, Texas to North Carolina right now. But how do we maximize profit for regional loads to keep good drivers happy? Right. You know, because at the end of the day, we need them right. more than they need us. And so we've been, that's been a challenge of how do we maximize profits through regional loads, especially being a new company. Our authority is much older now, but that's been one of the issues. The other issue is just figuring out all the regulations, mm. permitting, you know, if to, I'm an accountant as well. So I'm, but I'm outsourcing. Like I believe in delegation and outsourcing, but I still want to know what the hell is going on. Right. Like, for sure. How did you prepare this? You know? <laughs> for and, sure. And so that's been interesting to see too. And for me, it's a lot different um, coming from corporate, corporate law to truck, trucking when things aren't as organized and you know a little right, dated right, right, right. it's very very antiquated business yeah very much so and that's why i think it's such an opportunity here for tech so learning the learning curve that i had as it related to to all the regulations that come with that and then we had we had two drivers that it was pretty challenging with gotcha. managing different personalities yeah um you know, being a black woman, even though my, my business partner is a black man, you know, I, I, I still think for people who don't look like us, it's a little bit challenging to know their boss is a black woman. And, you know, it, it, it's true what they say, you know, it's hard out here for a black woman in general. And so we really have to stand firm to know that we're providing a service and a business that, you know, is not only gonna help benefit the economy and our drivers, but it's going to help benefit people who are unjustly sentenced and right. help advance this nation's movement to transform the legal system. And so the other main challenge has been the repairs, man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it'll be some weeks where I'm like, damn, like how many tires is on the truck? Right. But, you, but, but then it's, you might go two or three weeks with nothing. Right. You know? right. But when it rains, it pours. So did you guys get new, new, newer trucks or? We did like 2015. Okay. You know, with warranties and okay. just so my luck, the, what happened last week wasn't under warranty. Under warranty. Like $8,000 hit us at once, you know? Wow. And so it was that part, you know, I can definitely tell people who are getting in this space to be sure you have capital and a cushion. Yeah. Cause I can see how things could happen 
with repairs and, and accidents and things that could wipe wipe a company out. And so one thing that I, we've been working a lot off the dat board, of course, but we've been trying to utilize technology like Convoy, okay. Uber Freight. Luckily we're in a region in Texas, my business partner is based in Louisiana where those apps are heavy, you know, yeah. They're, yeah. They're, they're doing a lot of work in these areas. And so we're working with them, which is a challenge too. You know, technology, Uber Freight, for example, love it. Book the load, driver sees everything, upload everything to the app, but it's hard to get in touch with, with customer service. Right. You know, or you're getting in touch with them, but it's hard to get in touch with someone who can actually help right. solve right. the problem. And so it's, you know, when you're building companies like Uber Freight at scale, you know, that's kind of one of the trade-offs, you know, of, of having this customer service center, having to outsource it and things like that. So it's just really getting through all the nuances as gotcha. it relates to booking and loss. Thankfully, we have an internal dispatcher. Okay, I was going to ask you that next. Yeah, he's a former truck driver. He went on to do a lot of IT work and teaches at the community college. But one of our drivers used to work with him. Okay. And we called him, so we brought him brought him out of retirement. So he's totally <laughs> dispatching our trucks, and it is beautiful. I dispatched one of the trucks for the past two weeks. Okay. Because again. I was just taught you don't you never get in the business if you don't know what the hell is going on. Yeah. And that was eye-opening. I have a such a newfound respect <laughs> for dispatchers. Not that I didn't respect them before, but I have a, a greater appreciation for the work that they do, you know, yeah. Yeah. that I wouldn't have had if I hadn't dispatched this truck gotcha. myself. You know, so it's no been it's been an interesting, interesting journey. Does does your partner still drive? Is he driving as well or is he? He, he, do, he does off and on. Okay. Yeah. He he does team driving with one okay. of our drivers off and on. He's he's more now that we have a small fleet and drivers working on learning more of the business side. Yeah. And how yeah. can we how can we scale? And I'm I'm working to get him thinking through as well on on the technology side. Like we gotta, we gotta be there, y'all. Like we we have to be in these conversations and, and, and this push for, for technology in this industry. So got you. And, and he was and he was in prison for how long? Your partner? 15 years. Got you. And when did he come home? Almost two years ago. OK, so I mean, pretty much just came home. Yeah. How was how, how, how is he adjusting? Like, you know, I mean, at 15 years is a lot of time, you know, and then yeah. to jump into just adjust to the world because we're in a new world. You know what I mean? And then, and then jump into entrepreneurship. How's he making that transition? You know, the largest hurdle for him that I see is learning the technology, you know, getting used to email and, and things like that. Otherwise, it's like he hasn't skipped a beat. The mm -hmm. same with my other clients who are getting out. You know, I'm, it amazes me. Like you would have thought they hadn't been in prison at all. Right. Like it right. amazes me the, just the survivorship. You know, yeah. it, it it definitely is something that lets me know that this reentry transition can be conquered yeah. and that we can help provide the skills necessary for for formerly incarcerated people to thrive. And so luckily I'm for me, I have a large network of, of colleagues and friends. So I'm working to build a from that network to help with financials the business side of things, you know, so that Taronda and, and my business partner, they can learn it. You know, they're right. learning all aspects of it, but also learning the delegation aspect, the importance of outsourcing, you know, and again, technology. We got to always, everything I do every day, I'm thinking of how could this technology to tech bond it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. We recently, um, just, just speaking, kind of going back, talking about capital punishment, what just happened with, with Trump. And um, the brother, I can't remember his name. Brandon Bernard. Brandon Bernard. Brandon Bernard. What 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 what's your take on that? And 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 how you know Trump kind of moved forward to get these executions done? Um, I believe four out of the five are are black men, right? And I think it's one one white female, correct? Mm -hmm. um, before he before he leaves office, what what's your take on that? I absolutely do not believe in the death penalty at all, and I'm from Texas, so I grew up. You know, we were leading the nation in executions, and I grew up 
believing in the death penalty and not thinking much about it. But until we have a criminal legal system that's error proof, there's no way we should be killing anybody. And to me, I just don't feel that no matter what a person does, that the state should be in any position to murder somebody. Right. And a sentence of life without parole is, is harsh. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and what about like the way he's like kind of expedited things? Like, is there, is there like with that whole situation, is that like, what, what, how do you, what's the feel of that? Because I mean, there's a lot of talk around that. Like he could have just kind of waited, I guess Biden was going to come into office and he's against the death penalty. So there's a potential chance that those people may have not even have been executed. Like, do you think that it was something that he did, he's doing intentionally just like rush it? Like what was your perspective on that? I wouldn't, I don't know if it's more intentionally versus he just don't give a damn. Mm. You know, like these, this is the first time we've had federal executions in 17 years. Right. That's a long time. Like, what is, what is the point? You know, I don't think there's any rhyme or reason or logic to many of the things that, that he does, you know? And I say that with having had two clients that received clemency from him. Right. You know, and I'm grateful for that. But these, that's a part of the irony. <laughs> Sign a bill that is a criminal justice reform bill and you, you let a few people out, but then you're rushing to execute others on the, on the back end. None of it makes sense. Yeah. I, I just don't think there's any logic to it at all. When, 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 when a president is giving that kind of clemency, are they making that decision themselves or how does that work? Is that a, is that a collaborative decision with other members of the government? How, how does that work exactly? Typically, so normally you file a clemency petition with the Office of the Pardon Attorney. They review it, then it goes to the Department of Justice, several levels of review within the Department of Justice, probably five or six. Then it goes to White House Counsel's Office. And if they recommend it, then it goes to the president. That's how it was in Taronda's case and Corey's and, and other clients. But then I had Alice Johnson's case that drew the attention of Kim Kardashian West and Kim went straight to the White House and mm. bypassed all of those channels. And that's how Trump has been doing it. How does that happen? Why is she able to go directly to the White House and uh, somebody who's you know, a, a, a lawyer, that's actually what they do. They can't have that same type of <laughs> you know, that's the world we live in, you know, that, that influencer world, you know, we live in Kim actually saw Alice's video on Twitter and okay. was not only moved to tears, she was moved to action. And I've worked with Kim for a couple of years now, and I can say she's very genuine about this work. Awesome. And she wanted to use her platform any way that she could. And she was able to, to go to Ivanka and, and get a meeting with Donald Trump about Alice's case. What people didn't see though, they saw Kim go to the White House and Alice got clemency the next week. They didn't see the seven months of legal negotiations and work that we did Right behind the scenes. It wasn't an easy pull at all. You know, I'm grateful that Kim used her platform to help Alice get free, but I don't think it should require a celebrity right. to be able to get people out of prison. And so I'm hopeful with the Biden administration, one that he takes concrete steps to help rectify a problem that he helped perpetuate through the 94 crime bill. Yeah, and yeah. I hope that the Biden administration takes action to help restore a sense of fairness that's supposed to be at the heart of the justice system by granting more and more clemencies. It shouldn't be this one-off thing. It should have a normal right. all the time because these laws are so messed up, you know? And so on the one side, the president has the power and authority to do whatever they want when it comes to clemency. On the other side, you do want some order. Um, but I do believe a lot needs to be changed in that process. I don't think that if I'm filing a clemency petition for you, you're in federal prison, the federal government prosecuted you, the Department of Justice prosecuted you, that I need to go through the Department of Justice to get their permission for you to get out. Like I think clemency is where justice meets mercy. I think there should be a process in place that completely takes the Department of Justice out of the review process. Cause you're asking them to 
overturn essentially a case they they could have spent years building, you know, right. to send you away. And so they're only looking at the conduct related to the offense, right? Not the man or the woman that you are today. Right. So there, there's a lot that needs to be transformed. Like this criminal legal system is flawed in its design. Yeah. It is racist and we have to completely reimagine what justice looks like. Is that even possible to to read to 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 kind of get rid of these old laws? Like, what what are the steps that need to be taken to do that? Yeah, I think it's possible. Um, a lot of the transformation may not happen in our lifetime, right? But we got to do what we can. You know, the most important thing is to vote. We have to vote. You know, all eyes are on Georgia. If anyone's listening in Georgia, vote, vote, vote. The Senate race, this runoff, is so important and could help really change the tide of things, voting for, to put people in office who believe the same way you about this criminal legal system needing to be transformed and then hold them accountable when they get there. I'm, I'm looking forward to holding the Biden administration accountable for ensuring that criminal justice is at the forefront yeah. of you know their priorities, but also we have to know that we have the power, the people have the power. And we truly, truly have to vote. I have clients serving life without parole for marijuana. And as one of my clients, Farrell Scott says, I sold marijuana and got a life sentence. Other people are selling marijuana today and getting a life savings. There are bills. <laughs> wow. Say that again. That is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yes. He said, crazy. I sold marijuana and got a life sentence. And other people are selling marijuana today, getting a life savings. Wow. But there are bills that the MORE Act, it just passed the House of Representatives that decriminalizes marijuana. It would allow Farrell Scott to go free. You know, it's probably gonna be dead when it gets to the Senate, but if we engage in the election in January in Georgia, get a new Senate in place, that bill may just grow some legs right. next year, you know? And so it just shows the importance of engaging in democracy and understanding it took centuries of actions to get us here. And it's going to take, you know, centuries and decades of action to undo this thing. But we have right. to all do our part. Yeah, that 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 that's crazy. Um, so if if that bill was to pass in his favor, he would be able to then be um, then be let 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 go. For, Absolutely, for he would go okay. from being set to die in prison for marijuana to going just that home. one bill being changed. Just that one bill, just making sure people in Congress are representative of us. Yeah. You yeah. know, in voting. And then other ways we can get involved is to help ensure we're using our platforms for these issues. We have to speak out. You know, as Dr. Martin Luther King says, whatever affects one directly affects us all indirectly. Right. And in the black community, I think I think the statistic is one in every three black men have interfaced with the criminal legal system which means every one of us know somebody that has been impacted by these laws. And we can't just sit back idle because it's going to benefit everybody. When people coming out of prison are thriving, it's going to benefit us. Right. For sure. And you said a statistic earlier, you said 80% of the people locked up in for criminal in drug prison. charges, federal prison are, are black are and brown, black and brown people. Wow. Do you know the number of people or like roughly around the number of people who are locked up in federal prison for drug, criminal, drug, uh, criminal drug charges? I don't know the exact number. It's in the tens of thousands. Okay. Um, but I can find out. And it's on, like there's no other place, some states potentially, where a person can get life for drugs. Right. It, it's on the federal on in the federal system and that that's the part that's disheartening yeah yeah so there's 66 roughly 67,000 people Six. in federal prison for drugs and so 80 percent 67,000 people 80 percent of that wow. are black and brown that's 50 53 54,000 people <laughs> wow and That's many crazy. of them are there under laws that have changed. Right. They just right. haven't been made retro, retroactive. Donald Trump signed the First Step Act into law in 2018. 
there were four sentencing reform provisions in that bill. Only one of them was retroactive. So the three strikes law when Bill Clinton used to be like three strikes and you are out. Yeah. Your third drug felony, federal system, mandatory life without parole. Wow. The First Step Act changed that to where it's mandatory 25 years, which is still a long ass time in the feds because you do 86% of your time roughly. Unless you have life, then you do life. But it made it to where your two priors had to be serious. So my client, Chris Young, that I mentioned, you would have had to go to prison a year and your crime had to have occurred within the past 15 years. So my client, Chris Young, that I mentioned, had the two priors from when he was a teenager, weighed less than three pennies. He didn't go to prison for that. So his two priors couldn't be used against him today. Mm. But that law wasn't retroactive. So right. Chris is you know, still in prison. Wow, wow. Let's talk about your book real fast, right? It's, it's called A Knock at Midnight. Yes. Right? A, a knock at midnight. Talk, talk about that really quick. And, and first of all, Hustle fam, make sure y'all go and get Brittany's book, A Knock at Midnight. That, that, that's mandatory. But go ahead, talk about, talk about the book real fast, Brittany. Yes, yes, get the book. My book is called A Knock at Midnight, A Story of Hope, Justice, and Freedom. It details my story growing up in rural East Texas, having a mother who had a drug addiction and ultimately went to prison. And the book really just shows how I discovered injustice in the courts, how I discovered genius languishing behind bars, and how this journey helped evolve the definition of freedom for me. And I am very proud and grateful and humble to say that Amazon chose my book as the number one book of 2020. Wow. And I really wow. Congratulations. That's dope. Thank I you. I hear that? We got a best-selling author on the, on, on the Chuck and Hustle show. <laughs> Definitely make sure y'all go check out that book, A Knock at Midnight. That's dope. So that basically is telling your story and just kind of how you got to the place, you know, where you're at today, as far as, you know, what 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 molded you into being the person that you are. Yeah, it tells my story. It tells my story of working and getting Sharonda free, and my story of getting Corey free, and talks about just the journey to, to freedom and, and this evolution of freedom for me, as I mentioned, of how we have to have sustainable liberation for people. We have to have resources and capital and equity and entrepreneurship is definitely a priority for me. No doubt. Now with the Buried Alive Project, can, can people outside help if, if, if people wanted to contribute to that project? Yes, you can totally invest in our work. We are at buriedaliveproject.org. We're on Instagram at buriedaliveproject and totally like we are definitely looking for people to invest in our work. It is truly life-saving work, but we need everyone's help, you know, to help us break all these change and restore families. And then the the fund for to fund entrepreneurs who are who are being released is that attached with the Beverly Live project or is that something separate? It's separate. It's a fund that I started and I'm working now to really put my head around which structure I want to go. Okay. And the work to really build a fund. Like I'm about to break into venture capital in a way that I want to be able to use my experience as a corporate lawyer and accountant to break those barriers for one, so that black women can be venture capitalists, but two, break the barriers to ensure that people who've been impacted by this criminal legal system are at the table and getting their entrepreneurial dreams funded. Got you. And that would be basically when, when they're released, they're able to start their own businesses and that'll be a fun how to contribute to that. Yes. Yeah, that, that, and then we, we would have an accelerator, you know, resources and people who would help them from the business yeah. perspective. Got you. I mean, it's, it's, it's really awesome. I mean, the Chuck and Hustle show is definitely felony friendly. A hundred percent, man. And I love to hear these stories. There's a there's a funny meme that they have on Instagram. It says. Uh, the best, uh, the best truck ex drug dealers make the best truck drivers or something like that. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but I, but like, but like you said, I mean, we're being funny, but like you said, ultimately it's the same thing, man. It's entrepreneurship is just you know redirecting that energy into you know doing something legal, and um, man, you know, sky sky is the limit from there. You know what I mean? Absolutely. It's, it's, Absolutely. It's Entrep Entre what does Jeezy say? Entrepreneurship. <laughs> <Entre> <laughs> hundred percent. All right. So Brittany, we about to start wrapping up the show. It's, it's been really dope. Thank you so much for joining me today. Before we go, 
Um, we have to get your final thought, right? We always get our guest's final thought. And then you got to make sure you let everybody know exactly where they can connect with you again um, directly and just go over all the different things you're working on so everybody's aware. Yeah, so my final, the final thought. My final thought, I'm going to echo what my dad told me when it comes to entrepreneurship, this trucking thing to go for it. Stop worrying so much about the challenges. Imagine the possibilities instead. And as usual, every day as you're out there trucking, think about technology and ways that we can have a seat at the table to make this industry more efficient. I am an attorney, a social entrepreneur, author of A Knock at Midnight. I co-founded the Buried Alive Project and we work to free people serving life sentences handed down under these outdated federal drug laws. I am a business owner in Trustworthy Trucking. We're a socially conscious company, which means a portion of our proceeds go back to benefit the Buried Alive Project so that we can help provide free legal representation for people serving life for drugs. Our company is definitely background friendly and we prefer to hire people who have been impacted by the justice system. And I'm working on my next venture now and that's to, to kick the door open in venture capital so that we can free us. No doubt. I love it. I love it. All right, y'all listen, definitely support support Brittany and all her endeavors. If if you have a a, a, a a record and you're looking for a job, holla at Brittany, trustworthy trucking, right? Um, let's make sure we support what, what, what she's doing with this uh, Buried Alive project with her other, other endeavors. Really dope talking to you today, Brittany. Thank you so, so much for joining us on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And I can be found on Instagram or Twitter at MissBKB, MSBKB. Thank y'all so much, Shark and Hustle family. It is Hustle fam. If you smell something burn, it's only a desire. We are out. If you twisted, confused, or stuck about trucks, don't be dumb. This is the place to come. Truck and Hustle. Let's go.